Olympic sailor Matt Hayes has done it all on the water, from importing yachts to running a successful yacht charter company in Sydney. He circumnavigated the world a few years back and loved it so much, he's doing it all again. His wife Helen, that's my co-host, Helen Hayes, in case you didn't match the names, she spoke to her husband yesterday uh, while he's back in Sydney for Christmas. Well, I'm super excited to have as my guest tonight <laughs> Matt Hayes, who just happens to be my husband. And uh, Matt's done a lot of sailing. So we're going to talk to him on Travel Riders Radio about what he's doing at the moment. He's been to the Olympic Games, he's established sailing businesses, he imports luxury yachts, and he circumnavigated the world from 2018 to 2020. So what we're talking to you about now, Matt, is your next adventure. So you left Sydney in May and you headed off to the Solomons, PNG and Indonesia. For us landlubbers, what do you love most about exploring the world on a yacht? Well, thank you for having me on the show, Helen. <laughs> I'm just I'm honoured to be here. <laughs> and um, it seems convenient to be doing it in our lovely home as well. So what I like about uh, sailing or cruising, well, the good thing about it is you can see a lot of the world by sea, by yacht. And there's a lot of places that we went to which are really difficult to get to in any other way. Like there's no airports, there's no ferries, there's no other means of getting there. So on your yacht, you can go to some remote places um, and you get to meet some have some amazing experiences with, with um, local villages. It's very raw. You know, you feel like you're like a pilgrim. You're sort of, um, um, you know, you're doing something different to the majority of the population. That that kind of, that I like that. I like that sense of adventure. I like that sense of, you know, crossing the frontier, so to speak. And um, and it's very very reward, rewarding. You went to the Solomons, and you were telling me how some of the people you saw in the far flung islands hadn't seen a yacht in years. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, well, a lot of a lot of cruising yachts they actually avoid the Solomon Islands because when yachts come across the Pacific, um, they go from Vanuatu to Australia, and when they continue west, they go um, across the top of Australia, across um, between Australia and New Guinea. So they don't do that right hand turn up through the Solomon Islands, so they don't get many yachts that pass through. And obviously with COVID, no one's gone through there whatsoever. And the facilities there are very, very primitive. The Solomons is one of the poorest countries in the world and um, and subsequently it's quite kind of a dirty country, if you like, especially in the main areas like Honiara. Uh, however, um, it's very raw. It's kind of quite it's untouched. Um, the people are happy um, even though they live on nothing. They um, they catch fish from the sea. They grow their own fruit and vegetables. A lot of them don't have a boat with an engine. They just got they just kind of row their canoes everywhere, and um, they're very very happy. The other thing with the Solomons, it's got a quite unique geographical position in the sense that it's it's right in the middle of what's called the South Pacific Convergence Zone. So you get you'll get some nice sunny days, but then you get lots of weather. You know, like it rains and rains and there's thunderstorms and all that sort of stuff. Apart from that, there's a lot of history because obviously the Allies and the Japanese fought a lot there. So there's a lot of sunken ships and planes. There's a lot of history that dates back to World War II. For those who are interested in that sort of stuff, it's well worth a visit. And for diving, 
Um, not that I dive, but I I free dive. But some of the some of the diving there in the waters is just truly magical. And um, there's a lot of these what they call drop offs. So you have a reef, which might be say a meter deep, and you're swimming over this meter deep reef with this beautiful coral and all these amazing species of fish. Then when the reef ends, it just drops straight off and goes goes from one one meter down to 500 meters it's like a they call it a wall that mm. is walls and that's really extraordinary where you swim over this reef and you look over the wall and, you, and it's just like this abyss below you oh bit scary <laughs> now one other thing you said that you did in the solomons you you were invited to go and dine at the village so what was that like that was kind of, that was a really it was a really amazing experience because it wasn't one of the really good things about cruising, as opposed to when you live in Western society, there's a lot of the unexpected. We um, we try not to to have our expectations too high about a place where we go there. We temper our expectations, and we like to sort of be pleasantly surprised. So I don't know if you can picture this. So we're at anchor in this beautiful bay, and then um, we're told, you know, come ashore and, and, and we can have, have a meal with the locals. And we get to the shore, it's right on dusk, and there's these beautiful fires burning and there's and the beaches all decorated with these exotic flowers and there's like a it's like a, an arch that you go through and there's a, a a wooden sort of table that they're made out of a log which has got this amazing food this local produce this food that they've grown and fish from the sea and whatnot and there's all these gorgeous young kids that are sitting around all laughing and these beautiful ladies dressed up in these traditional costumes and there's the um, the chief of the village who's very welcoming and and um, you like you feel like and this is like their this is like their lounge room this is their living room but it's outdoors it's under the stars and it's on the sand and it's really quite it's really quite touching. You were like VIPs. We were, yeah. I mean, it's it's. I would rather. I mean, I you know, it's like going down the red carpet in Hollywood. Not that I've done that, but you know, it was really quite a magical experience. You know, and they put a lot of effort into it. And everything there that they supplied is what they either grow or what they 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 source from the ocean or from the beach. That would have been just so special. And of course, you took some some food as well and did a bit of trading. So we'll we'll get to the sort of things that the locals ask you for later. But um, PNG was a bit similar, I guess. But um, what did what was you, the surprising thing about the islands you visited in Papua New Guinea? Well, when you when you think of Papua New Guinea, you think of danger, you think of getting robbed, you think about rascals, you think about, you know, like it's a really, really dangerous place to be. So we were sort of aware of that. But when we left the Solomon Islands, we checked out of a town called Noro, which is like a northern port. And so the next place for us to enter into New Guinea is a place called Buka Town, which is, which is in Bougainville. So Bougainville has a pretty poor reputation for security but um but in in Bougatown, i mean i felt really safe the people were really friendly everyone's saying hello and commenting on that sort of stuff all the officials were great but they did say that um we did have to leave on a certain day and they did suggest we leave at night and with our light no lights on no navigation lights no lights in, internally so we had to literally sneak out of this port um and so we wouldn't be intercepted by some rascals who often board yachts and, and mm. trading vessels. But you felt pretty safe most of the time. Yeah. But then again, that could be a false sense of security. Yeah. But anyway, so then we went to um, a place called Nissan Island, 
which one of my crew whose father was stationed there in World War II. And the, the villagers were just beautiful people. You know, they, they have a little bit more than the Solomons, but they have, they have there are some generators so they can have a bit of power. Um, they have, um, they have, they have these things called banana boats with outboards and so they can kind of get around the, around the island, which is like a massive big lagoon. Uh, but they don't have TVs. They don't have, you know, I think the chief of the village has a mobile phone, not that it works there. And they are, uh, so they live not frugally, but what you do here at, from the boat at anchor at night, all you hear is laughter. You hear children's laughter, laughter of the adults playing games with their kids and whatnot. And, um, and, and they have, and the houses that they live in, they're, they're beautifully maintained. They're very basic and standard from our, our, you know, I suppose, well, compared our to standard, us. yeah, compared, compared to us. But when they have a lot of pride in their housing, um, they love the environment where they're very green. Um, they love visitors. They're very welcoming, very warm. And um, they really are, you know, a beautiful people. And you were quite popular with the kids in the villages, weren't you? Oh yeah, I mean they um, paddling out in the in the canoes. Yeah, they paddle out. They're all surrounding the boat, and they and um, and then we, you know, splashing them and jumping in the water. And we had some toys that you know we we we'd share with them and all that sort of stuff. And one of the things that um, there's many things I've brought on the boat. I'm sure we'll talk about them later. But there's one thing in particular is we bought soccer balls because you know soccer is a world game and it kind of unites the world. So. I remember when we kicked a soccer ball up in the air and it landed in the water and they went to bring it back. I said, no, no, that's yours. And then we went ashore half an hour later and we're walking through the village and there's about 20 kids running around in this open grassy area and they're all kicking the soccer ball that we gave to them. So they didn't have a soccer ball in the village. And so that one wow. that, that one ball, that one thing just brought so much joy and happiness to those kids. That's 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 really beautiful. Now you did have some um, rather unusual requests. People would come and they'd want you to to give you something in the in return for something. So what were some of the more unusual requests that people asked you to provide for them? Um, the, well, we, like there was one you mentioned to me where you wanted they wanted something printed. Oh yeah, yeah. They wanted something printed. Yeah, they wanted um, some um, a song printed. Um, they said we'd like you to print this song with kind of a shame it'd just be on one page. But it was like a songbook, and they wanted five copies. And we're like, come on, we can't do that. So, um, so that didn't happen. But generally, that was kind of a one-off. But generally, people, there's a lot of things that they need, and the things that they ask for, and want to trade for, uh, uh, is what is required for them to survive. So fishing lures, fishing lines, um, you know, bits of rubber for their spear guns because the rubber keeps breaking all the time. You know, they, they, um, they love coffee, but it's really hard for them to get coffee and coffee is expensive, so they want coffee. They want, you know, some stuff in their boat like epoxy glue because, you know, some of their boats, you know, crack and get leaks and those sorts of things. And, you know, things like flour because they, like, they want flour, they want rice, and they're kind of big heavy things. As well as um, clothes like t-shirts, shorts, uh, women's bras, goggles, um, yeah, swimming goggles. Lots. Of, we gave up lots and lots of swim goggles, uh, face masks. You know, swimming masks. Hmm. Um, and, and the other one, other interesting thing, which you didn't even really think of, and luckily I took a lot of these along for my own use, and so did some of my crew. But um, they need reading glasses, and so. Um, so the local clinics, you know, they have reading glasses there, but people, they can't get reading glasses. 
because you've got to remember from 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 Nissan Island, you know, the the, the next biggest town, which is Buka Town, as an example, that's fifty nautical miles away, which is about hundred kilometres, and there's no airport, there's no ferry, so they actually have to get in their open longboat and they have to travel that distance to go into the shops and buy stuff. And they have to get the fuel to get there and get back. That's right. And later on when we talk about, oh, we'll talk about this now if you like, like the outer islands of, of New Guinea such as, because we went to Kaviang, which is the top of New Island, which is very safe and a really beautiful area. But then we went across via um, through what's called the Bismarck Sea and we stopped at the Hermit Islands and the Ninigo Islands. So the, the nearest major island to them where you can where you can buy things is called Manus Island, which is yeah. obviously infamous for mm. um, having a detention centre there. And so the people from um, the Ninigos, as an example, in order for them to get fuel for their boat, let alone building products for the little houses or flour or sugar or or anything clothing or even if they're sick and they need to get some specialist medical treatment because they don't have a doctor in on on the islands they just have a have a medic is they have to get in their banana boat they have to travel approximately 120 nautical miles they need for that distance they need about 220 liters of fuel uh, with one outboard, it's an open open boat. It's twenty foot long with with an outboard of forty horsepower out and back. So if they travel one hundred and twenty nautical miles, that's like from Sydney to I don't know to um, even past Seal Rocks and back, Botany Bay to Seal Rocks and back. That distance in the open sea, no land around, out on your own. They have a little handheld GPS. They have no EPIRB. They have no safety equipment. They try and get a rudimentary weather forecast, and it changes a lot because it's equatorial. And so they, they travel for the whole day and they get there and they buy all their stuff, but then they have to get another 220 litres of fuel to get back. But they've got to get another 220 litres of fuel to go back again whenever they need to go back again. And they have to have fuel to last them for going around the islands or going around the Ninigos, as an example. Yeah, sounds dangerous. Now, you're speaking of the Ninigos, you went to a yacht race there. What's the tradition of that? Well, they have these... Um, they're called canoes. It's a canoe. It's basically a long canoe. With, with sails. With a sail on it, yeah. Right. And they have this race every year, but they haven't had it for like the last four or five years. It's a, it's a traditional method of, of them traveling, if you like, um, mm. between island and island, uh, but also, you know, within the lagoon, because the lagoon in the Nidigos is actually, it's like 10 nautical miles across. And so they have this race and there's different divisions. They have like a, I think they have like a 20 foot, boat canoe and a 30-foot boat canoe and and it's a big thing and they there's actually prize money involved and we had a lot of things on our boat. Um, we bought, bought a lot of charity items and so we donated thousands of dollars worth of of equipment, you know, to be, to be used as trophies, if you like, for the participants, which was really well received. And, you know, for us, you know, it sounds like a lot of money, but for them it means the world to them. And so um, it's not as if we're giving them cash or we're giving them bars of chocolate. We're getting giving them stuff that helps them. Yeah, well, of course, that's really important. Um, now we've got to get on to the Indonesia part of the trip, which is Raja Ampat. So what was that like? Because that's sort of like really popular with cruise itineraries, like Raja Ampat. People had never heard of it like three years ago, but now it's like, oh. 
got to go there. So was it? did it meet your expectations, Raja Ampat and the Spice Islands? Well, um, as I mentioned, I try and keep my expectations low. So, um, but I've, you know, I've heard a lot about Raja Ampat. It's a place I'd like to go to because I have a curious mind, you see. Mm-hmm. And um, so we entered into Indonesia in a place called Biak, which is West Papua. And interestingly enough, before I get into Raja Ampat, Biak used to be like the, the, the barley of Indonesia. And um, it's all the jet setters just to fly there from the United States. And nearby is Sendawasi Bay and Padadeo National Park, which is just gorgeous. So um, then west from there, we entered to, um, we made our entry into the Raja Ampat area, which is a place called Wasai and Sarong. And Sarong is a place where people fly into. But with that area, if you can recall, up till, I don't know, like 10, 15 years ago, whenever Suharto, President Suharto, President Sukarno was in power, <clears throat> um, this was an off-limits place, so you weren't really allowed to go there. So it's only really opened up in the last, what, 15, 20 years. So it takes a long time for it to get established. And and as a result, it's very clean. The water's clean. It's untouched. It hasn't had that overdevelopment. What they've also done is a lot of areas which have been declared national parks and they haven't been built on and, and they have a lot of pride in this area and really is the jewel of it's the jewel of Indonesia. It's absolutely stunningly gorgeous. A lot of coral reef. It's regarded as the one of the richest or the richest marine biodiversity area in the world. It's got something like eighty percent of the world's coral in in this area, wow. and that is fed from the Great Barrier Reef. Oh, really? That's how they think it's fed up from the Great Barrier Reef. So we went to some islands, and there's one place we went to. It's called Wyag, and it's you know you could Google Wyag. There's really three ways you can go there. One is on your own boat. Uh, one is on someone else's boat who you befriend or on a, like some sort of a liverboard. And so there's no accommodation there. There's no, you know, there's a ranger that lives on the island, which which we never saw. And when we were there, there was in, we were there for like 10 days. And I think in that time we saw maybe five other boats. Wow. And you have this whole place to yourself and it's. It looked like paradise. Oh, it's just it's it's probably in terms of the marine environment, it's the most beautiful place I've ever been to anywhere in the world. You're talking about you know the the days being full of great things like snorkeling and and swimming and all that sort of stuff. Does time tend to stand still when you're when you're ocean cruising like this? Uh, yes, it it does, and it doesn't. I mean, you have some days which sort of fly by, but um, one of the things that when you're cruising every day is different and and um i have to be i'm like a a new i'm like a mother with a newborn i'm sort of i'm I'm on all the time i'm alert i'm i'm listening in i'm listening to my my boat if it's making any really weird sounds or creaks or groans or whatnot i'm in tune with the weather and all that sort of stuff so um and that can actually make the day longer if you like in in terms of, of feeling longer and at, at sea, on, on passage, you know, the days can, can string out because they can be, because everything seems to slow down and, and you're sort of absorbing the environment and everything. So it's a really nice way to live. I, you know, it's not, it's not for everyone, but I think it's a really nice way to live. Well, you probably feel like you really are living because you're out there in the middle of nowhere in the ocean and all you've got is like the odd bird and just this horizon and, and you're out there. You're not like worrying about missing your bus or, um, being no. late to work or a meeting, it must be quite a nice way to spend your time. It is, but it's not, you know, it's not all 
perfect. I mean, there's you have lots of you have many bad days, like, and it's generally around weather. You know, you have bad days, and obviously there's some things that happen to the boat which have got to be fixed. So, you know, there's a there's a there's a, a sort of a, a funny kind of phrase for cruising. It's you know, um, cruising is really yacht maintenance in exotic locations. You know, so <laughs> there is a fair bit of that involved. Yeah. Um, but it isn't it isn't for everyone because you do have to have certain skills and knowledge but then you have to sort of you know um give it a go i mean what what i've seen a lot of recently since my circumnavigation are a lot of young people doing it in their late 20s and 30s and even in their 40s who have just thrown in that they don't work anymore um they're giving up a job often a high-powered job and they've bought the boat and they're off cruising around the world and and um which, you know, some people go, oh, you know, you're missing out on all this sort of stuff and whatever. But I think they become richer or they're, they're, they're enriching their lives more than just, you know, enriching their wallets, if you like. Yeah. And there's so many people I, I've met that they always dream about doing this and they actually don't even do it. So, um, Well, what's your advice for somebody who might have always wanted to do it? What do you, what do you say to them? You know, there's a lot of research you can do. Like there's a lot of Facebook groups on there and, and um, a lot of books you can read and you can really get down to the nitty-gritty of what it's really like. But I think then you've got to – then there's no other way. I mean, apart from doing all your training and getting all your knowledge and all that sort of stuff, but there's there's really no other way than just taking the plunge and getting a boat and, and, and mucking around in your local local area for a year or two or 18 months and really getting to know the boat um, and making sure you're really happy with its preparation. So I'm fastidious with my preparation. I have lots of – I have spares of spares and I have an intricate knowledge of most parts of the boat. And so that's really important to me because when things go wrong or things don't work, I know I can fix it Mm. um, and and kind of be on our way. So having that – and that's like you have confidence in your boat and in your own ability and all that sort of stuff – and you just can't get on a boat and go and, and have that. So there is a fair bit of work. So if, if, if today someone decided, you know what, I'm going to go cruising around the world, um, it's going to take you from the time you buy a boat, if it's used or if it's, if it's, if it's new, it's going to take longer. And by the time you, get, you take delivery and get it ready and prepare it and test sail it, you're looking at at least three years. If you're yep. doing any sooner than that, then you're going to encounter many problems. Well... Travel Writers Radio is very happy that you have talked to us. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you again when um, you've finished your next leg. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you for the interest, and I appreciate um, the opportunity to share my, my experiences. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Helen. Helen Hayes there, extracting some valuable sailing wisdom from her husband, circumnavigating sailor Matt Hayes. It was a good interview, Helen. Yeah, well, I was... Chat and, uh, over the kitchen table, not the pillow talk. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was the kitchen table, actually. This is the Travel Writer Show on J Air 88 FM in Melbourne. Well, as I mentioned at the start of the show, this is our final radio show for 2023. We'll be taking a break, a well-earned break, I'd say, but we'll return later in January with some more stories about food, wine, lifestyle and travel. I want to thank all of our team members. You know who you are. If I mention one, I'll forget someone. So I also want to sincerely thank my co-host through the year, Rita Ehrlich, 
Helen Hayes, with occasional appearances at the microphone by Carolyn Jasinski and Justine Costigan. Uh, our team of reporters also around Australia and offshore did a spectacular job presenting the stories that we know you like. As we roll on towards our 10th anniversary of Travel Writers Radio, we also sincerely thank you, our listeners. And that is Travel Writers Radio for this week and this year. We'll feature some of our best stories in our summer series on Jair before we return in late January to our regular spot from 5 to 7 p.m. on Wednesdays, repeated Saturdays from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. here on Jair 88 FM in Melbourne, also live on the net at j-air.com.au. Our stories are readily available via our website too, which is Travel Writers Radio. Dot com. And Travel Writers Radio is a production of Pallet, the professional association of lifestyle and travel writers. So until next week, actually, until next year, it's good night from me, Graham Kemlo. And good night from me, Helen Hayes. Have a Merry Christmas. And a Happy Hanukkah, and thanks for listening. <laughs>